I am really excited uh, to, to be in this series, and I really want to welcome you if you are new to Jesus. Uh, so glad that you're here. You know, maybe a colleague uh, brought you here, a friend, uh, a, a, a family member drug you here or whatever, and just so glad that you're, you're with us, that you're our guest. Uh, we, for seven weeks, we're exploring seven topics, and they are equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. I'll say those again. Equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, and progress. Most Canadians, I think, see these as seven great ideas, seven great values. But I'm not sure most Canadians realize where these values come from. I'm not sure most of us as Canadians realize that these seven values are rooted in, inspired by, and deeply connected to Christianity, or what we are calling the Jesus Revolution. British author Tom Holland says the Jesus Revolution 2,000 years ago has been the most powerful and enduring revolution in world history. He says this, quote, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian revolution, the most disruptive, the most influential, and the most enduring revolution in history. And my hope is that week by week, you and I will look at these seven ideas or these seven values and follow the breadcrumbs. And if we do, I believe they will lead us to Jesus. As I mentioned uh, last week, these seven weeks are inspired by uh, an amazing book that I read over the summer uh, by, an, by the author Glenn Scrivener entitled The Air We Breathe. The Air We Breathe. I would encourage you to pick up a copy uh, his argument is the same as that of, of Tom Holland, that you and I, even if we don't believe in God, we cannot escape the Jesus rev revolution. Or to put it a bit differently, uh, as my friend Sid says, that today we are living in the echo of the Jesus revolution. We cannot escape hearing the echo all around us, the echo of Jesus all around us. So, last week, we looked at the topic of equality, and today, we move on to the topic of compassion. Compassion. Let's begin with the Apostle Paul's words uh, to the church 2,000 years ago. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Clothe yourselves with compassion. And King Jesus, as we come to you today, we would pray that you would clothe us with compassion, that those of us who claim to follow you would, would actually do that, and that we would be a people of compassion towards all those in our life and around the world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So the dictionary, the definition of compassion is this, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So pretty simple, right? We feel a deep sympathy, and then we begin to do our best to alleviate someone's distress. So in other words, it's an emotion. Compassion is an emotion that leads to action. So it's not just an emotion, right? But it's an emotion that leads to action. Most of us in the room have heard of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, the nun who worked among the poor and the dying in the city of Calcutta. We, we, we've all heard of her. Why? 
Why have we all heard of Mother Teresa? Because of compassion. When she was just 12, she felt the call of God upon her life. She wanted to spread the love of Christ. And so when she was 18 years old, she left her home in Macedonia and joined the Sisters of Loreto, a community of nuns. These nuns had a strong connection to India. And so she arrived in India on May 24th, 1931. And she would serve there in Calcutta for the rest of her days. I believe she died in 1997. She started teaching at a school in Calcutta, um, so, but she was within the walls of the convent. But as she was teaching, she would look outside her window and she would notice the suffering and the poverty outside of her convent, and it broke her heart. So she decided to minister to those on the street, among the poorest of the poor there in the slums of Calcutta. She had no official financial backing, but she trusted God daily that he would meet her needs and her team's needs daily with what they needed to show compassion to the poorest of the poor. Her simple desire was this, was to care for the unwanted, the unloved, and the uncared for. And throughout the 1950s and 60s, she established a leper colony, an orphanage, a nursing home, a family clinic, and a strong uh, string of mobile health clinics. In 1979, she won the Nobel Peace Prize and then donated her cash winnings to the poor of the city. And one of her most famous statements captures her heart. Quote, not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. She also said this, by blood, I am Albanian, by citizenship, an Indian, by faith, I am a Catholic nun. As to my calling, I belong to the world. As to my heart, I belong entirely to the heart of Jesus. She belonged entirely to Jesus. It was Jesus, the one who had compassion on her. It was Jesus whom she saw, the one who had had compassion on the poor, who inspired her compassion for the poor. Now, on the other side of the spectrum is Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, who, by the way, is brilliant, very smart, very smart philosopher. I know many in the room are probably very impressed by uh, his depth, his philosophy, but he's the German philosopher who wrote of the poison of pity. And by pity, he means compassion, the poison of compassion, the poison of pity. And he wrote about it in his book, The Antichrist. And he wrote this, quote, pity or compassion on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. Nature, he argued, is always selecting the strong over the weak. It's obvious, look at the natural world. The big fish eat the little ones. And so Nietzsche wonders, why are we messing with nature's way of preservation? We should actually help the process along if we actually want to have compassion on humanity. And so he wrote, quote, the weak and ill-constituted shall perish, and one shall help them to do so. Now, those of us who are starting to observe what's going on are starting to feel angry. Does this, does this kind of thinking anger you? It should, because we begin to see the implications of this kind of thinking. Those who are weak, the sick, the disabled and the elderly are just a few who are in danger from ideas like this. Nietzsche goes on to aim his attack on Christianity. 
He blames the poison of pity on Jesus followers, on Christianity. He says this, quote, Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservative instincts of sound life. Nietzsche, Nietzsche sees followers of Jesus as the ones that are thwarting the, the natural law of selection. Nietzsche rightfully points out that it's Christianity, or what we're calling the Jesus revolution, that has taken the side of the weak, the low, and what he calls the botched. But this is so unwise, according to him, right? It messes with the law of natural selection. If we let little fish die, then the big fish keep getting stronger, and this will ultimately help the world. But you know, something deep within us, something in our gut, in your gut and mine, just knows that this way, Nietzsche's way, is wrong. We know that the survival of the fittest, we can almost feel like the survival of the fittest is contrary to the way of love. We know in history that Adolf Hitler put Nietzsche's views into practice with the Jews, the Roma, the gay community, and those with disabilities, right? The gas chambers of the Third Reich are the natural extension of Nietzsche's thought. True compassion, according to Hitler, was to eliminate the weak, right? Help the world along a little bit. He said, quote, humanitarianism is the expression of stupidity and cowardice. But again, something deep within us is just like, no, it's wrong. And we feel it. I think you feel it. I feel it. We know this is wrong. And that deep thing in you, I believe, is the echo of the Jesus revolution. So let's think. Where do we get this idea that we are supposed to be compassionate? Where do we get this idea? Where does, the idea, where does this belief in compassion come, come from? Why do we resonate with St. Teresa of Calcutta and not Frederick Nietzsche? Well, let's, let's, let's explore this question and let's look at the ancient world. Have we inherited our love for compassion and desire to love others from the ancient world? specifically from the Roman world? Well, in short, no. Larry Hurtado, the late historian from the University of Edinburgh, wrote, wrote this. Historians, quote, simply do not know of any other Roman-era religious group in which love played this important role in discourse or behavioral teaching. And love there, he means practical love, uh, the love of others, the love of neighbor, compassion, I found this incredibly interesting. The self-identified, quote, atheist or agnostic atheist, Bart Ehrman, uh, some of you know that, that Bible scholar, Bart Ehrman, um, he actually agrees. He agrees. Uh, some of you know Bart Ehrman is known to, he's, he's very bright, a biblical scholar, and he will debate a lot of Christian biblical scholars quite often. But as an agnostic atheist, he, he agrees. He's, Bart Ehrman says, listen, the Roman and Greek world was all about dominance. There was no ethical problem in wiping out a village. Slavery was just simply not a problem. Men dominating women was not a problem. But here is Jesus who preached service, and that was revolutionary. And so here Bart Ehrman, the agnostic atheist scholar, says, we got this idea from Jesus, this idea of service, of loving your neighbor from Jesus. 
Compassion is such common sense to us, right? And maybe you're feeling that as I'm up here saying this. You're just like, yeah, but it's just, it's so like common sense, <laughs> right? It's so self-evident to us. But I want to ask, what if we began to believe that compassion no longer made sense for certain people? What if there was a group of people politically that no longer deserved our compassion? We live in a polarized age right now. How many of us in the room have been tempted to believe that those who think differently, ideologically, politically, especially in the last couple of years that we've walked through, that, that there's a certain group that, that, no, we don't need to be compassionate towards them. It's a temptation, isn't it? What if there was a certain person, right, that no longer deserved your compassion? I, I want to be really honest with you. Christians have failed at their duty to compassion. I, would, I hope that, that each week you hear uh, we as Christians say that we have not lived up to the values and teachings of Jesus. We have not. There have been times where we have been avoiding compassion and slow to compassion. We haven't followed Jesus. One of the times that, that comes to, to, to mind for me was the very slow response to the AIDS crisis in the 1980s amongst Christians, right? And for many Christians who understood marriage differently than the gay community, as they began to suffer, Christians were slow to provide compassion. And that's not every Christian. There were Christians that responded. But, but in general, we were slow. And we have to own that, right? Slow to compassion. See, what if, what if you and I begin to be tempted with this idea that maybe, maybe there was someone that didn't deserve our compassion, right? What if we began to believe that our enemy deserves no compassion? It's really not hard to imagine. But it's Jesus who taught the revolutionary message of compassion for everyone, including your enemy. Jesus commands his followers, all of us who claim to follow him and love him, to love our enemies, period. It's, it's really not a suggestion. He commands us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And here's my point. My point is that compassion makes sense to us to a certain point, right? Compassion is self-evident to us until you're talking about those people, right? But what happens when it's, when it's no longer that self-evident, when it no longer makes sense to me? Well, if I follow Jesus, he allows no exceptions, none. So let's talk about Jesus. Jesus was compassion in the flesh, <laughs> He was like compassion walking around in person. He cared for the sick and the dying. He loved and healed lepers. He forgave sinners. He loved the outcast and brought the marginalized into his family of faith. He was, he was the embodiment of everything the people of God knew God to be. Because you see, God had described his character to a man named Moses in the desert hundreds of years before Jesus. And God had described himself this way. This is, this is how he describes himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so Jesus was that God that had come to the earth in the flesh. That's what we believe. Jesus 
was the God of compassion here on earth. If you wanted to know the compassion of God, you had to look no further than Jesus. He was the image of the invisible God. He was the exact representation of God. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. A biblical scholar named Tim Mackey points out something brilliant. He says that the Hebrew word for compassion is the word rachum, and it's related to the Hebrew word rechem, which is the word for womb. We're supposed to think of the feeling of love that a pregnant mother feels at the core of who she is for her child in the womb. That is what God feels for the world. It's what Jesus felt for people as he looked out upon them suffering. It's what a pregnant mother feels for that child. It's what Jesus feels for you. And we see this in Matthew 14, when Jesus saw crowds that were sick. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Matthew 20, there are two blind men who sat by the side of the road. They're crying out for mercy. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. One of Jesus' most important short stories is the story called The Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of a Jewish man on a journey. A Jewish man on a journey. And, and by the way, I just want to pause and say... Um, for some of you who are new to Jesus, you're like, okay, now that sounds familiar. I've heard the Good Samaritan story, right? Often we'll hear like news anchors. I've heard this. News anchors talk about there was a Good Samaritan who did blah, 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 right? Well, when we, when we look at the context of the Good Samaritan story, it's not just someone who helps someone with their flat tire, right? It's not just someone who feeds the poor. It's someone who cares for their enemy, who loves their enemy, so, so here's the story. Um, Jesus tells the story of this Jewish man, right? He's, he's on a journey. He's traveling from, from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's a windy road in the desert, very dangerous. And, uh, and somebody, a, a group of people beat him up, leave him half dead. And uh, so he's lying in the gutter, basically, half dead with nothing. And uh, two men walk on the other side. They, they don't help him. One is a priest. One is a Levite. These are two religious men. They, they don't want to help the guy. They don't want to touch him at all. They wanted to preserve their purity, right? They don't, you know, they, they would be impure in a Jewish setting if they were to touch a dead body. So they go to the other side of the road. They avoid contact. But then the third person, the third person who comes by is, is, a Jew, is an enemy of the Jews. It's a Samaritan, right? And the Samaritan shows up <laughs> and and here's what happens. And by the way, I love Jesus when he's telling the story. He's telling the story to all Jews, right? And who's the hero of the story? Their enemy. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. That's compassion right there. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Two religious leaders see a bloody man who's half dead on the side of the road, and they show no compassion, none. And they are Jews not helping a Jew. But a Samaritan, an enemy of the Jews, sees the Jewish, Jewish man half dead, and he cares for him. It's compassion for your enemy. 
Author Tom Holland calls this little story, quote, the greatest short story in history. I love that. It's the greatest short story in history. If you uh, are in the Western world, it will be very difficult for you to avoid the Good Samaritan story, right? It is just part of the echo. It's, 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 it's part of the air you breathe, the Good Samaritan story. We know this story, and we can't escape it. This, this short story from Jesus continues to challenge the world. It's compassion for our enemies. And I just want to say, early Christians followed the way of Jesus, and they brought a revolution of compassion to the ancient world. Imperfectly, definitely. These are not perfect people, right? It's not a perfect story of compassion. But they looked to the perfect one, Jesus, and, and modeled their life after him. And I want to give you a few examples of the first 300 years of Christianity. So from like year 33, when Jesus died and rose again, to about year 313-ish or something, first 300 years. The late sociologist from Baylor University, Rodney Stark, who just recently passed away, he chronicles the rapid expansion of Christianity in a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he, and, he gives, and he gives some examples of what happened. So example number one, early followers of Jesus cared for others during plagues. Did you know that? They cared for others during plagues. There were two massive plagues, one in the second century and one in the third. These plagues wiped out large portions of the Roman Empire, up to 30% of the empire both times. Can you imagine that? 30%, a third of your neighbors dead. And Christians were at the front lines of care. We see this in historical documents. As people fled the cities because of the plagues, Christians stayed in the cities to care for the sick and the dying. And the church became a new family to those who were suffering. And it's important to note, this is very important, that Christians are documented as caring for non-Christians during the plagues. It was not Christians caring for Christians alone. This was Christians caring for their neighbors, whoever they were. See, the good Samaritan story continued to influence uh, how Christians showed compassion. And they, and they gained a powerful reputation during these plagues. Second example is that early Christians cared for people in cities. And cities in the Roman Empire were horrific places to live. Rodney Stark looks specifically at the city of Antioch as a case study. It was a, a city where Christianity thrived. And he said Antioch was actually a city filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, hatred. Most families lived in filthy homes, uh, where about half the children died young, where different ethnicities clashed, where mob violence and crime flourished. And, and Antioch was a city that experienced, experienced cataclysmic disasters. But Antioch and other Greco-Roman cities, uh, they just simply weren't great places to live. Yet, Christians stayed in these cities and offered cities hope. So this is recorded in history. They, they stayed in Antioch. Listen to Rodney Stark, quote, to cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered affecting nursing services, effective nursing services. And it's on that last point that I want to give you my third point. Third point is that early Christians offered health care for, for all. 
they, they had these effective nursing services, healthcare for all. When we look historically at the time in the Greco-Roman world, medical care for everyone was just not a thing. Yes, the Greeks had physicians and the Romans had sick bays for slaves and soldiers, mostly to ensure that the economy continued, right? You need good, healthy slaves and soldiers to go back to the work they were doing, right? Uh, it's the basis of any good economy if, if you're an empire like Rome. But healthcare for everybody, and just to be clear, you know, this is not a debate about healthcare here today, but this was healthcare that didn't come from you know, taxation. It came out of the pockets of early Christians, willing to offer healthcare to anybody who needed it. And so apparently this kind of compassion in the ancient world was a very much a Christian thing. The American scholar David Bentley Hart wrote about how G the Jesus Revolution leaned into compassionate care. And, and he wrote this, and just, you know, my, my apologies for the long quote, but it's a great one, okay? So, St. Ephraim the Syrian, when the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, established hospitals open to all who were afflicted. St. Basil the Great uh, founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the cure of lepers, whom he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. St. Benedict of Nursia opened a free infirmary at Monte Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. In Rome, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe, and despite her wealth and position, often ventured out into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. St. John Chrysostom, while Patriarch of Constantinople, used his influence to fund several such institutions in the city. Did you know, did you know that Benedictine monks following Jesus founded over 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe? 2,000 hospitals. And one begins to see the reason why the Roman Empire left its gods and eventually moved towards Christianity. Masses amounts of people, massive amounts of people in the Roman Empire were becoming Christians. It's, it's clear why. Because of compassion. Because they were being cared for by other Christians. That's how you turn a world upside down. It's one by one compassion, right? Man, I just want to do, an, this is not in my notes, so this will be dangerous. This we are so fixated, fixated on, I don't care where you are politically, on the right, left, whatever. Like, we just find the answer is always in politics. It's always in politics, right? And we get so angry when people think differently about politics. But what, what, when we look at the first 300 years, how do you overturn an empire? It's through compassion. It's through love. It's one by one, loving your neighbor and loving your enemy. And you got to give it time, maybe not in your generation, but in the next one and the next one. A revolution of love and compassion can take over empires, right? It can throw them upside down. And maybe that's what we need to focus on. Anyway, hope, hopefully I said that correctly. Back to my notes. Vishal Mangalwadi, in his book, The Book That Made Your World, writes this. This is a beautiful quote. I love this. Romans rejected Rome's culture because Christ confronted its cruelties with the gospel of a compassionate God. He invited the poor, the meek, the sick, the sorrowing, the hungry, the weak, and the weary to come to him for rest. He blessed children, touched lepers, healed the handicapped, delivered the demonized, ate with social outcasts, protected prostitutes, taught illiterate masses, opposed the oppressors, and reconciled rebellious sinners with their loving and forgiving heavenly father. Christ's followers built upon this tradition of compassion for the unlovable. 
North Langley, today, when the world needs care, they look to a red cross for a reason. They look to a red cross for a reason. Henri Dunant, founder of the Red Cross, was a committed follower of Jesus. He was part of the Jesus Revolution. He knew the story of the cross that became red with the blood of his Savior, Jesus. The cross of Jesus, of course, is the heart of compassion. It's where we see Jesus on the cross having absolute compassion for the world. He died, he shed his blood so that we might live, so that we might be forgiven. He literally takes our place, dying the death that we are supposed to die in order that we might live. And the shocking reality of the cross is that the cross was for Jesus' enemies. Jesus had compassion on his enemies. From the cross, he says this, Father, forgive them. I mean, he's hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they're crucifying. In other words, Father, have compassion on them, on my enemies. They have no idea what they're doing. I want to give one fun example about how the Jesus revolution of compassion has turned the world upside down, about how Jesus has turned the world upside down. You know, it used to be that uh, in ancient empires uh, and modern empires gone wrong, (laughs) that the person at the top, the person at the top is filled with power and narcissism (laughs) and ego and oftentimes they consider themselves gods, right? You fill in the blank, insert name of said ruler, <laughs> right? But the, cha- but the compassion of Jesus and the servant leadership of Jesus changed how we view leadership. How many of you have attended a leadership seminar on servant leadership, right? What happened? We invert the leadership structure. Your greatest leaders should be your servants, right? ministering to people, having compassion on people. That's what we now expect of our leaders. And Glenn Scrivener points this out, and he says, in parliamentary democracy, we call our politicians ministers. He says this, quote, if you want evidence of the Christian revolution, look no further. Our rulers used to pronounce themselves gods. Now they are servants. We have, in Canada, we have a prime what? (laughs) minister minister it's a prime servant right and uh, now is not the time to argue whether our prime ministers are actually serving the people but we get upset uh, when our politicians fly jets all over the world when they take lavish vacations when they don't follow the rules that they tell us to follow I mean, whoever the prime minister is, like we, this, this bugs us when this happens. We don't like it when government money is used for friends or when we see things happen. We expect, we expect our prime minister to be a servant of the people, no matter what party they're from, right? We expect that. But why are we expecting that? Do you think the Caesars of Rome thought that that was a good idea? No. <laughs> you can expect tyranny, and power from me. That's what you can expect, right? That's the Caesars of Rome. And by the way, you can call me a god. That would be nice, right? And uh, worship me, right? I mean, that's, that's Rome, right? But we have this thing where we're like, no, 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 no. They need to be a servant of the people. They need to be the prime servant. And we invert that. Who, who told you to invert it, right? Well, maybe Jesus in Mark 10, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our leader in the Jesus revolution, our leader became a servant, wrapped a towel around his waist, knelt down and started washing dirty feet. So our view of leadership just blew up. Oh, he has compassion. He loves his people. He serves them. And so we see what a true leader should be. And he calls us to do the same. We did not get our leadership plan from the Caesars. We got our idea that politicians should be servants. We got that from Jesus. As I draw this to an end, can you and I begin to see that compassion may not be a gift from the ancient world? That compassion may not be a gift from the survival of the fittest? That compassion may be a gift from Jesus and his revolution. Christians in the room, uh, this calls us uh, to be very uh, loving, caring in how we relate with people. And I want to ask you, who is Jesus calling you to be compassionate to this week? Like, let's not let this just be a theory. There is someone in your life that needs compassion. How might the Spirit of God fill you with all wisdom and power to offer deep compassion for someone in your life, maybe even an enemy, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved? Did you know you were dearly loved? (laughs) You are dearly loved. Clothe yourselves with compassion. To those of you who are new to Jesus, the entire hope of my message today is to simply say this. If you believe in compassion, I believe that you already believe in one of the core beliefs of the Jesus revolution. If you love the way of Teresa of Calcutta and you have trouble with the way of Nietzsche, then you are benefiting in a beautiful way from the echo of the Jesus revolution. If you believe in compassion, I think you will love Jesus a lot, a lot. We're going to move into a time of communion where we're going to take uh, the cup and the bread as we remember uh, the body of Christ given for us and his blood shed for us. I want to let you know uh, before we begin uh, communion that our prayer team is ready to pray for you. And I was so encouraged by our prayer team. And just so you know, we as a church are trying to be sensitive to what God might be saying to us week after week. And uh, our prayer team was sensing today that there might be someone here who needs prayer. And let me, let me be clear about this. This is uh, very specific. Where you expected compassion from someone and you experienced correction. And there's a wound there. It was not God's heart and you're hurting. And if that's you, our prayer team would love to pray for you. They would love to pray for you. So in the prayer room, and there's going to be some people up front here in a bit, but would you go forward for prayer? Uh, Secondly, uh, they were sensing specifically that there is someone here today who is walking through a cross-cultural adoption, a cross-cultural adoption. You are entering into this beautiful moment of compassion, and uh, they, they would love to pray for you. So if that's you, if you are walking through a cross-cultural adoption, would you come pray with our prayer team? They just want to pray for you and encourage you. Um, And also anything else. If you are just needing to have wisdom with how to show compassion or whatever need, our prayer team is here to pray for you.
As we come to communion, let me read a quote from Scrivener. It was on the cross that Christ, the fittest, was sacrificed for us, the weakest, so that we, the weakest, might survive more than that, that we might be raised up, forgiven, and filled with the life of his spirit. You see, Jesus is the good Samaritan in your life. When Jesus saw you, he was overwhelmed with compassion for you. When he saw your half-dead body beat up, when he saw your broken life, he had a deep compassion for you that welled up from deep inside of him. He came to you. He stooped down and came close to you. And then he picked your life up from the gutter. And he offers to wash you in the wine of his love. He offers to cleanse you with the wine of his love. And he paid the full price for your healing at the cross. The full price for your healing. And he will come back one day to take you home. And he is ready to pour out his compassion on you. Will you receive it? Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, says this as we take the bread. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. King Jesus, we thank you for your body that was given for us for your blood that was shed for us. At the cross, we see the fullness of your compassion for us. Thank you for healing us. Thank you for pouring your life upon us. We pray that you would make us a people of great compassion. Give us wisdom. Empower us by your spirit. And may we see just a true vision of who you are. And may that lead us to this great compassion. We love you. Amen.